So screening is not the heart of integration. It's like the belly button of integration. It served a purpose and sometimes it's useful. And it's weird if you don't have it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Uh, now I have to get myself in that headspace. <laughs> wow. Okay. Hmm. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast. My name is Naftali Saran. I'm the Chief Executive Officer here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. We sponsor this podcast because we're passionate about integrated care. You probably are used to hearing the voice of Grace Pratt introducing the podcast, but Grace is, I think, kind of at a mechanic shop or something. Her car got stuck somewhere. And apparently some sort of grinding sound, which is never good. If you have a car and you hear a grinding sound, that's probably the worst possible sound you, you could hear um, this coming from the son of an auto mechanic. So yeah, pull over right away if you hear grinding sounds. So Grace is not able to be here with us, but we do have the rest of our team. And so I'll let them uh, tell you a little bit about them uh, and say hello. So Bridget, who's up bright and early, on the West Coast, uh, say hi to hi to the world. Yeah, my name is Bridget Beachy. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist by trade, and I am on the West Coast. And so I don't know what time y'all listening to this, but I actually had a consultation on Central Time. They're 8 a.m., so I actually been up since five, and so started my day at six. So I'm feeling feeling good. Well, you should you should be transparent with our listeners because our listeners are smart people. You know, feeling good is a relative term, right? I mean, you you were just talking about the uh, the plethora oh. of emails that you love. I, I was just confused as to how I ended my day with all of them read, and it's seven a.m. on the Pacific time, and there's already like thirty-two unread messages uh, full of problems. <laughs> how that could be happening at seven a.m., but uh, that's okay. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready for yeah. it. All right. Bridget's always ready. Yeah. Uh, and then if we travel to the south of the uh, nation and we go to the great state of Texas, where our good friend Deepu is. Deepu, say hello. Hello, world. Uh, actually, this is my first recording for 2021. I've just been providing the ending to Kevin and he uploads it. So great to be back. Excited to be here. Uh, my name is Deepu George, and I'm at uh, the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, which is uh, the, at the southernmost tip of uh, the United States in Texas, uh, right next to the U.S.-Mexico border. It is gloomy and rainy outside, not hot, and 100 degrees at 8 a.m. yet. It'll, it'll get there like in a few weeks. Good morning. Thanks, Deepu. And then uh, just uh, traveling slightly north to the above average state of uh, Colorado, where it's it's kind of like Minnesota. I think Colorado is the new Minnesota. It's like everybody wants to move there. It's Everybody thinks they're above average because it's such a cool place to live. Everybody's cool who lives there, including Christine. I agree with everything, except when was this a Minnesota thing? Oh, that's the whole Garrison Keeler thing. There's just everybody's above average. Okay. Aging myself here. Okay. I'm like, because I get Colorado, but Minnesota. No offense to anyone in Minnesota. I grew up in the Midwest. I love it. 
it's also gloomy here, which is really unusual. And so, and I'm also sitting in my bed if everybody needs to know that I'm a little under the weather, staring at depressing weather. So here we are. I'm Christine Borst. I'm a medical family therapist, uh, former professor turned creative entrepreneur. And I think that's all I have to say about myself today. Other than this is your sixth bout with COVID? Man, it feels like to everybody listening it is not confirmed that I have COVID again. I will get, I will go get swabbed in a few hours for them to tell me, no, that was just a fun thing to do with my morning. I think it's totally unrelated, but. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed and you've got your next vaccination, your second dose coming up soon, which is cool. Monday. Yeah. And just for history's sake, you know, um, most of us have our vaccinations now, uh, which is great. Yeah. 2021, things are slowly turning the corner. Great. We've got a great show for you today. Um, We're going to be talking about screening and screening in primary care. Uh, It seems like a really relatively benign topic right? Just like sort of asking people about uh, certain symptoms and that we can identify and help them with. Um, and that's, you know, it seems like such a simple, benign, bland topic that, that doesn't have any controversy or complication associated with it. Um, but as our conversation will elicit, uh, there's actually a whole lot that goes into all of that. However, before we get to our conversation, that's our teaser for the conversation. Let's take a break. We're going to do our usual inside CFHA segment where we hear a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes at CFHA. Hi, everybody. I'm Neftali Serrano, and this is Inside CFHA. Um, I am the Chief Executive Officer here at CFHA, and I'm joined by Marta Saucedo. Marta, say hello. Hi, everyone. Marta Saucedo, the Project Manager for Technical Assistance and Strategic Development. Uh, excited to share some news about what's going on inside CFHA today. Yeah, so today we decided we'd uh, do a little bit of a highlight of what we do with technical assistance uh, here at CFHA. Just to give you an inside look at some of the kinds of things that we work on. And technical assistance is a really fun thing to work on because of how varied it is. Technical assistance is just ba- basically how we help clinics and individuals uh, implement integrated care programs. So Marta, uh, give me a sense of what, you know, what are some of the kinds of maybe beginner type projects that we uh, will take on sometimes? Sure. So, you know, there's some agencies that probably they just received a grant or they just wanted to start the integrated care model, but they don't know where to start. So we will be reached out and we can help them all the way from uh, sharing job descriptions of what a behavioral, behavioral health consultant, you know, needs to have, or even the director of a program. And we'll, we will share that with them. We can help with the hiring process by promoting the job position in CFHA, uh, give some guidance as well through all the um, uh, recruitment process, but then also um, help them how to educate not just the BHC, but also the medical providers and the leadership team in that clinic so they can buy in into the model. Um, they can get also some support about billing. So that's kind of those places in which they're in the starting points. 
Yeah, and, and sometimes uh, you'll see a clinic that is back to a beginner stage because maybe they've had some transition, they lost providers, or they, they're going through some sort of organizational transition. So it's not even just that the clinic is brand new to integrated care, but they're kind of starting over. And we, we are really good at really getting with, within an organization, understanding the cultural dynamic of the organization and figuring out how to best you know, plan out growing a program, even if there are other things within the clinic that might be um, you know, difficulties. Um, and so, but, but we don't just work with clinics also, right? So there's other kinds of situations where people access our help. So what, what other kind of situations might we help with? Yeah, sure. So that can be like educational entities. So for example, we can help, uh, you know, to promote conference when integrated care, when they need speakers, or they even, you know, they need to organize a, a summit or a, a conference. So we help with that as well. Uh, we have been working with, you know, a couple of uh, universities help them with the speakers for their uh, events, but also providing technical assistance because usually what happens is that students will go to some entities in their area. So they wanna support not just students that are working in integrated care, but also the supervisors in the agencies that are supervising the students. So we provide um, content for their programs, but also provide technical assistance to these individual agencies where students are going to do their practicum as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then one of the other areas that uh, we'll highlight is just simply, there's been a lot more interest in telehealth. Um, and so we've been working with entities um, uh, who wanna implement telehealth-based uh, services, uh, wanna just figure out how to make that work, right? Across uh, sets of clinics, sometimes across different payer groups, et cetera. And so we can do everything from uh, providing some of our resources on CFHA Learns, uh, for example, that, that provide coaching on uh, doing work via clinical work via telehealth to just coaching on, hey, what's the best approach to engage your patient base um, using uh, telehealth? Or uh, how, how do you develop workflows around telehealth? So this is what makes it kind of varied when people ask, hey, what kind of consulting work uh, does CFHA do? The answer is, well, it really depends on <laughs> what the project is. Um, and then the last thing here I'll ask you, Martha, is so um, it's not just you and me doing this, right? So we're not just all what CFHA does consulting-wise. What happens when we find a project that needs maybe um, some specialized expertise? Yeah, sure. So I think we have a great group of consultants who are very capable and they have ex areas of expertise. And we know who those people are and we will reach out to them and ask them if they will be part of that program. So then they will work with us and they will be our client, but they're going to actually provide that service to the agency. So the thing that I help doing is communicate what we need and kind of connect them. But if they have any issues or they have any questions, they can reach out to me and I try to kind of help with that. So even though they support the client, they're really working for us. Uh, for CFHA. And if anyone listening to this uh, podcast is interested in being a consultant, I'll invite you to go to the Integrated Care TA page, which is... IntegratedCareConsultation.com. Yeah. Yeah. 
and um, you can actually apply to be a consultant. So if you find yourself that you have a particular area of expertise or you feel like you want to share your talents, please fill out the form and we will evaluate you to see if you want to be part of our consultant at list. And just a reminder that that's members only. So this is, these are CFHA members who are providing technical support for their CFHA colleagues often, although our clients are not just CFHA members. Yeah. All right, great. Um, so uh, that's what we do with TA. Again, if you're interested in more information on what we do, take a look at our resource page, integratedcareconsultation.com. There's also some really great resources that we amass and list there. So check out the resource page. It's, you'll find some interesting stuff uh, there as well. Now, there's one other thing that we have going on, not technical assistance related here as we wrap up inside CFHA. So Martha, tell us about this uh, community conversation. Yeah, so we have been having already some of the community conversations, which is the topics that we know members are um, really interested or it's like the main topic in their list of conversations. And we realize this will be good to have like a community conversation. Uh, we will bring speakers and, you know, you join that Zoom um, talk and you can learn about the topic or, you know, chat and do questions, you know, ask questions during the session and learn a little bit more. And then the good thing also is that these sessions are recorded and then you can watch them later if you didn't have the opportunity to be in the event. Um, so right now, I think the topic that we're going to be promoting soon, it's about, you know, how providers are dealing with all the changes and COVID and how does it look like now that things are starting to go back to normal, but are not normal yet. Um, so all that conundrum and all, you know, the new nuances that have been happening lately. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you want to find out more information and to register for that event, just go to our main page at cfha.net. That's cfha.net. It's our main membership page. You scroll down to the calendar uh, there and uh, that community conversation will be listed. Um, it'll be, it'll happen in the middle of May. All right. And I think well, that's it for us. Yeah, that's it for us. Back to the regular podcast and the podcast crew. Thanks guys. Bye. All right, we're back. Thanks to my partner in crime, Marta Saucedo, for that Inside CFHA uh, segment. So as I said, we're going to be talking a little bit about screeners, but um, we still have to channel Grace and her wonderful icebreakers. And so uh, let's get to the icebreaker that Grace actually gave us to think about today before her car broke down. And so the, the icebreaker is basically if there was an action figure of you, what two accessories would your action figure have, right? So if you think of, you know, I don't know, I guess a G.I. Joe figure and it's got, uh, I don't know, a rope or a gun or whatever, what would, what would your accessory be, right? So I'm going to go to uh, Christine. Christine, give us a sense of what your, your action figure would, uh, accessory would be. So in one hand, I would have my little mini iPad and my little mini Apple pencil. Pencil. In the other hand, I would have a tote bag and it would have all of the random kid stuff. Parents out here, you understand what this bag is full of. Like one shoe that doesn't match, like in my bag, you know, like an old food article, something like the most random things. 
So it's kind of like whatever kid buys this action figure, they're going to get way more for their money because there's so much stuff shoved inside that second accessory. And yes, parents, it will be all over your house and you will step on it and it will hurt your feet. Spoken like a veteran mom. All right. So that's our first uh, action figure accessory. That's going to be hard to top. Bridget? I feel like mine are going to be predictable for anybody who knows me at all. So I feel like my action figure would be riding on like a gigantic bearded dragon, some type of lizard. And not, for, yeah, very predictable on that one. Right. <laughs> and so the, the, the dragon like creature would be able to have, you know, superpowers of some sort. And then I'd have some type of basketball, I feel like in my hand that would, it maybe it has magic powers of some sort. I'm not sure exactly the level of magic powers, but I would have some type of basketball and be riding some type of lizard creature. Oh, gosh, that's so awesome. <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> oh, the problem is I can totally see it. You know, it's I know. like yeah. visualize it so well, like the bearded dragon and you holding the basketball. And I, I'm just trying to figure out how you're dribbling the basketball while you're on the bearded dragon, you know, because I don't know. That's great. That's fantastic. Thank you. You just made my day right there. All right, Deepu. I don't know how, how you and I are going to top that. Top that, yeah. I was like, all right, whatever I'm thinking of was probably too boring for Bridget's comparison. <laughs> <laughs> and Christine's going to sketch that. That's awesome. Um, so I, I was like, I was so um, thinking about like my daily routines as I was thinking about action figure. Like where, where would you find me in action mostly? Uh, so I was literally thinking, I'll, if I'm running around clinic, I'll have my laptop. So I definitely want a laptop <laughs> on my hand. And uh, I definitely have a water bottle. Aquaman. So those would be pretty mundane. One thing I would, the action figure would have in their pocket or somewhere is uh, I had uh, an adopted grandmother who passed away in 2020. Uh, she gave me this little... Uh, like very smooth stone and she wrote a little note and the note had something and that said you know the the stone becomes smooth after years and years of kind of different things happening to it so it kind of serves as a reminder of the growth that I would be doing in any sphere of life that I'll be in so I'll definitely have that as part of my action figure so that'll that'll be me no dragons no basketball yeah, I'm, I'm glad you added the last one because water bottle on laptop, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> He'll be a hydrated action figure and that's very important. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Actually, there's a, a, at the clinic that I work at, there's a lot of the medical assistants have these humongous bottles of uh, like these water jugs. Uh, have you guys seen these with the, that they have the time markers on there? It's like a gallon of water or something. And then like you have to drink a certain amount by nine and then 10, 11 and 12. I might see those things. I'd be going to the bathroom all day if I drank that much water. It's a, yeah. I bet 75% of the listeners just now opened their water bottle and took a sink. Look at us increasing health behavior one <laughs> shot at a time. It's hard to go to the, find time for going to the bathroom during clinic. It is. It is. <laughs> It's super hard. Like I actually, that's, that's a big problem for me because, you know, I like to boom, boom, boom. And I, by the time noon comes around, I am in pain. Mm -hmm. 
and I feel really bad. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. TMI, but we're good. Yeah. <laughs> I brought it up. It's my fault. <laughs> That's right. There's a lot of opportunity behavioral intervention here about, you know, weighing the costs and benefits of staying hydrated and how can we work through, like, what are your ultimate goals here for your health versus your productivity at work? That'll be another episode, everyone. Yes. Yeah. And your urological health as well. Yeah. All right. Let's jump into our conversation. Um, screeners. All right, so just to, to, to level set our audience, right? So uh, an, inc- an important distinction here that I think is often lost in the screeners conversation is the difference between screeners and outcome and tracking tools. We often conflate those. Screening tools are tools to identify patients with certain conditions, right? So the, the sort of, I don't want to call it gold standard, but the typical is uh, the PHQ-9, right? So a tool of nine questions that um, screens a patient to assess their uh, symptoms of depression over the last two weeks. And if they reach a certain threshold, that means that they are at risk of of, uh, having significant depressive symptoms that may require some sort of intervention, right? So that's what a screening tool is at a very basic level. And then a tracking tool is a tool that is a, a, could be a survey kind of a thing, but it's an instrument that's used to uh, measure change over time. So it's a tool that you could use to say, all right, uh, this score started out at this number and then it changes to this number and six months later it changes to this number. And that's how we track whether someone is doing well, just just how, the, how they're doing and what the, what, what the efficacy of the interventions that we're applying are. Now, some of the nuances that's important to also understand is that people often use uh, screening tools as triggers for actions on care teams, right? So, for example, uh, if a patient has not been um, assessed within six weeks and and there may be a trigger in the HR to to administer the uh, depression screener, right? And a care manager might call the patient because they haven't come in to see their their PCP. Or if they get a a score that's high, a care manager may call the patient to come into the clinic to see their PCP because they may need some review of their medications or they may need to come in to see the BHC, whatever it is. So that's another function of screeners is to serve as sort of a part of the trigger for actions, um, often to make sure that patients don't fall through the cracks of their treatment. Right. So that's that's sort of kind of the level set thing. Now, I want to try to start our conversation out with a positive. Right. And so what I want to ask the group here is what are some of your best case uses for screeners? What are some of the ways in which you think screeners are helpful? What are the optimal ways in which these sorts of tools in, in your experience and your team's experience are, are helpful? So, uh, Deepa, I'll start with you. Where where do you think screeners serve a, a helpful purpose? So, actually, if uh, for the the 2020 CFA chair, there was actually a debate uh, held by Randall Wrights, and there was like a for or against screening. So he had like a three series. You had to debate pro and against kind of positions. 
So I was kind of asked to take the pro stance on screening about, especially for PHQ-9 and, and GAT-7. And so, of course, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. And so I'll kind of put my bias out there first. So a couple of things that I talked about as to why screening is primary care is a great place to deliver and coordinate healthcare services that is kind of timely and effective. And so screening is kind of native to primary care, right? Like it's part of what primary care does naturally. So screening for something like depression kind of falls into the repertoire of the other things that primary care uses screening for it. So it's not a new language that they have to learn, but it's kind of adapting it to uh, optimal use, which is probably what we'll tackle in a little bit. Um, I just thought also that uh, Matt Martin can kind of made this point in one of his blogs on CFHA, where he talks about screening as like a necessary technology where the attention is a precious and limited resource, right? So a lot of physicians, let's say they don't have a BHC, they're not a fully integrated care clinic, uh, they're not going to probably pick up sensitive um, information or pay attention to mood, et cetera. So if a screening is in, the patient is kind of willing to uh, uh, talk a little bit about where they are that day with the screening tool, it may give them the direction to kind of address that during the visit, right? So that, that was like the other uh, point that I thought about in terms of the benefits of screening. And then it is brief and, you know, I'm, I'm specifically talking about PHQ-9 GAT-7. So there's some benefits to that, but there's also, um, there may be some uh, challenges to that because um, it may be overused and, and kind of um, over relied upon. And so that may be some of the things that we can talk about uh, a little later. Uh, but it does kind of help meet some needs, right? So we're able to get like a base level, baseline uh, thing to get uh, primary care teams and medical teams to kind of think about other aspects of healthcare that are not so visible. So that's yeah. where I'll kind of start us off. Great. That's a great, uh, great summary. Just for the folks out there. So again, PHQ-9 is a measure of depression, nine questions. And GAD-7 is a is a symptom checklist, essentially, of anxiety symptoms, seven questions. Uh, Bridget. Are we still on benefits? <laughs> yes. Yes, Bridget. We're still okay. trying to be, we're still trying to channel positive energy. This well, morning. like a true functional contextualist, there is nothing that is uh, good nor bad. It just depends on the context. So I think it's a truth behavior when we say that we're going to give a screener to casting a really wide net and to a bunch of people to help detect things that maybe ordinarily wouldn't have been detected. And as Deepu just pointed out, maybe opens the conversation uh, for if a physician has a lot on their plate, which they almost always do, and somebody pops a 27, which is the highest you can get on a PHQ, and they they're coming in for something else, it might be able to transfer the conversation to what's going on with mood, because that might be more pertinent. And had that not have happened, maybe we would have had the toenail removed or whatnot. So I think that in those ways, it's, it can be really good to identify, to pick up things that we ordinarily wouldn't have. I, the other thing that I really like about screening for PHQ and GAD-7 is that it makes mental health within the regular realm of, of course, you go to your doctor, and of course, we're going to talk about this. And so it kind of which I have other ideas for other tools that we could do that would maybe do that slightly better. But uh, 
we're not on that yet, <laughs> but I think it just makes it a normal part of, yeah, you're going to go to your doctor and depression, anxiety, uh, we're going to put it all on the table. And this is stuff that we can and should be talking about. Yeah. So that normalization is a, is a key piece of it. I think, um, Christine, what are your thoughts? It, you, you spent a lot of time consulting with clinics, probably trying to get them to do screening. Yes. And I think that that's the interesting part, kind of, um, dovetailing on what Bridget said, symbolically, I love it. And, and I think about all of the practice meetings that I've had or led where, where everybody's coming together and we're saying, listen, we're prioritizing mental health enough that we're going to implement this screening. Sorry, my puppy is whining in the background. <laughs> um, and again, that's best case scenario, but I think it does say something when we're saying, okay, this is important enough for us to change what we do as patients come in period. And then I will stop until we're at the next section to talk. More. <laughs> yeah. So, so if you're a listener out there and you're like, man, this sounds like pretty straightforward, right? I mean, what, what, why are these guys so hesitant to, um, uh, you know, expound on the, the greatness of screening and, and part of that's uh, just probably because you're, you're, you're hearing from four clinicians, uh, primarily, and uh, clinician program developers here on the call. And so there's a lot of sort of uh, ways in which screening uh, can get in the way of, of good clinical care sometimes, um, and a lot of ways that it can also be misused. So we can, so I'd like to start unpacking. So we started out with the good. Um, and actually, let me add a couple of other goods here that, that, that are important to mention. Um, so, so I, I actually think that one of the biggest uh, benefits of screening is is uh, across populations. It's a, to to gauge how well you're doing across a population in a certain uh, with a certain metric, right? And to use that as a trigger points for I actually like I developed some uh, care management scheme that's sort of uh, aligned with. Uh, sort of this collaborative care model-ish uh, thinking so that we would, on a quarterly basis, look at all of our PHQ-9s for all, all patients and do follow-up phone calls with patients after doing chart reviews on those patients to make sure that they came in to see their, their provider, to address any concerns on the phone, to basically not allow those patients to just fall through the cracks because that can happen in primary care, right? I mean, if a patient just doesn't show up there's no way of kind of remembering that that patient didn't show up until the next time the patient comes in. And it might be six months later that they come in and nothing has happened. No BHC intervention, no medication intervention, um, no PCP intervention, nothing has happened, right? And I think, I think screeners are really, really helpful tools in that regard. So, so that's just one of the other benefits. But, or and, there are lots of challenges there, right? So... Let's get to some of the challenges. Um, what, what are the ways in which screening either becomes a cumbersome piece of the clinical workflow or at times can be unhelpful? I don't know if anybody else here has done this, but I routinely as a patient want to hop in and be like, actually, this is not proper screening. You're not doing it right. You're not asking it right. You're like zipping. You, you can tell the discomfort from the person who is doing it. They're like, I just don't want to talk about it. And so I think that that 
the delivery of it is so important and making sure that everybody has fidelity if we are doing like the PHQ2, for example. I have literally been asked, you're not depressed, are you? And then I'm like, actually, I really hope you're not doing the PHQ2 screening because that was not the appropriate way to elicit an accurate response. Um, but yeah, so that would be one way I think that we, that it can really skew the results that we're getting. I think um, I will wait for Bridget to jump on this too. Uh, going back to contextual setting in which this is happening and what is the meaning of it as we kind of try to make sense of it as a healthcare system. I, I don't know if I've used this analogy before, but you know I have a Honda Accord and let's say I really like certain features in the new BMW and I like their on-screen display and all of that. Now, if I just put a logo of BMW on my Honda Accord and try to get some kind of uh, workaround to get the BMW display on my Honda, as I drive, my driving experience won't be the same as if I'm driving a BMW, right? So when you think about screeners, if you're just saying we need to do this because it helps us meet a metric and it helps us meet certain quality things that we are after, but everybody in the clinic has not kind of made sense of it, what their role in it is, and there is no common shared responsibility, and there is no collective competence attached to it, then it becomes burdensome, unuseful, stigmatizing, and uh, all the kind of negative effects of uh, something that could be very positively and functionally used as starts to creep in. So that's where I'll kind of start us off. It's good, Deepu. That was, that was really eloquent. Yeah, I think I just, I get nervous for all the reasons that Deepu just said, so that say you give the PHQ2 and then it's negative. I'd, I don't even know what percentage of people I'm working with right now who their PHQ2 was negative. I think it's a lot. And so if there's this assumption like, well, we screened them and it was negative, so we're all good. And then on the flip side, we screened them and we got a high score, so it's all bad. So those, again, I, I think that Deepu actually uh, explained that really eloquently as to not really, if you're just using it, but not really kind of understanding how you're going to functionally use it, there can be issues there. And this idea like, oh, well, they scored a 12 on a PHQ2, or sorry, on the PHQ9. And so now we have to consider medication or uh, we need to do treatment. Not, not even every person who scores a 27 on a PHQ needs treatment with a capital T or stop everything. And we got to call alert for a, a BHC to come in. That could be, as again, you said, very stigmatizing. And just this idea that as a, as a, as a clinician, again, I don't think the PHQ or GD7, any of these things are in and of themselves right or wrong. I think sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's not helpful. But I have seen an over-reliance on behavioral health clinicians. You come in, you have all these years of education and training, and then you're like panicked and be like, well, give me the PHQ score, give me the GAD score. I'm like, I don't care what the score is. I'm gonna do my contextual interview. I'm gonna get, get, and get to know this person. So, and I'm using hyperbole. I'm not saying I don't care, uh, but I'm just not going to put the crux of exactly what's gonna go down in that visit. I am not gonna have the crux of it be this score. The score can be a supplement. The score can be something that notifies us of something. Uh, it could be used in that way. We could put it into the chart. It's on our awareness. But actually, functionally, when I'm in the room uh, and I'm, I'm starting this visit with this person, I am not starting out with, well, it looks like you have a PHQ-9 score of 21. It looks like the symptoms you're experiencing are this, this, and this. 
So what can we do to help lower your score? And I, I kind of am being facetious here, but not that facetious. I've seen that be how, and, and now we're doing integrated care because look, remember we said it needed to be brief and it needs to be targeted. So it's targeted. And I'm saying, what can we do to improve this person's depression? Juxtapose that with, you use the screener to get into the room. Uh, well, use the screener, it positive. The physician uses this as a tool and communication tool to say, hey, is this something you want some support on? Uh, you can talk with me about it a little bit. Uh, we don't have as much time left. We can make another visit or heck, we have a BHC right here on staff. And the person says, you know what? I'll talk to the BHC. Physician says, awesome. Brings the BHC in. The BHC says, hey, Dr. Smith just got me, uh, told me a little bit about, about what's going on. I want to get to know you. Boom, jump right into the contextual interview. Find out that information, come up with a smart goal. We have a deep connection and we move on. Uh, in that case, I feel that the PHQ-9 absolutely did its job. But again, if instead I come and say, oh, I see you have a 27. I see you're experiencing all these symptoms. What are we going to do about this? We need to make a safety plan and we need to make a safety plan right now. What is that experience going to be like for that, for that patient? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's what we feel as clinicians, right? I think one of the things you're highlighting, Bridget, is that um, from a clinical standpoint, it's not the, these screening tools are not terribly helpful at the point of care. And that, that's the, that's the, the difficult part of it. Like it, it's not going to drive the nature of your visit most of the time because it's the context of the symptoms where you do most of your work um, in, as far as intervention with the patient, right? That, that's where it is. The symptoms are a trigger for uh, paying attention to the patient and attention to their behavioral concerns, but it's not what's going to drive what you do with the patient necessarily. So, so I think that's where I've struggled with it as a clinician because I'll look at the PHQ, I'll look at the score maybe before I go in or if it's on the EHR and I'll see the list of scores over time. And that's just one little piece of information that I'll put in the back of my head. But when I sit in front of the patient, I'm not going to start off with the score. I'm going to start off with some important piece of their uh, context that um, I think might be a relevant place to start the contextual interview with, you know, and, and get to know the person and then figure out where we can best help move that person forward with regard to their goals and values and, and um, you know, uh, how to live life um, more meaningfully, essentially, right? And if and as part of that, we might uh, think about things like medication um, and things like that. I, I might on occasion, although I would say fairly rarely, point to the score on the instrument as a metric, right? More often than not, I'm going to point to a functional metric. Like, so if we uh, start this medication, I, this is a question I use quite often. So if we start medication today, what would be the difference in your life? What would you see happen? What would we hope to see happen, right? Because I want, I want the patient to know what, what better looks like. Because a lot of times yeah. when you're in the middle of a behavioral crisis, you don't know even what better looks like. What does better look like in my life? Well, um, I, I can get up and play with my kids um, and, and pay, pay, pay more, spend more time with them, pay more attention to them. Okay, that, that, that's a really great functional metric. You know, um, uh, it's not really interesting to the patient or valuable to the patient to say, my PHU-9 score will go from 19 to 12, right? Like that's not, that's not an intrinsic value um, uh, to the patient. 
So, so I think, I think that's, uh, uh, that I think is what we're, we're talking about. At the point of care, the instrument itself is not clinically helpful to engage the patient, essentially. Neftali, that was awesome too. And the last thing I'll add is when you were doing symptom-based screeners, a lot of times there's the natural association that since it's high, there must be something wrong. And that what's wrong is the disorder that the person has when really, if you do a quick love work play assessment, it would be odd if they didn't have those level of symptoms. Folks coming in after a breakup, they're going through a divorce, they had a child pass away, you name it. Or, you know, some of the folks I was working with uh, almost died from COVID. You know, there's this series of things and it's like, I'm more concerned if you have zero symptoms on here. And so it's, again, this, I think an inappropriate association that symptoms are bad, lack of symptoms are good. We don't know that it's too yet to be determined. And so somebody doesn't have symptoms. That doesn't mean that things are, are good. We need to still assess it out. And then if symptoms are high, it doesn't necessarily mean things are bad. And then p- patients get this message like, Ooh, this isn't good. And it's like, well, it's not neither, it's neither good nor, nor bad. We just have to explore it more. So once I was at a like postpartum or checkup for one of my new babies and they gave me the Edinburgh postpartum depression and I scored high because my dog had died suddenly like a day and a half before. So I was like, it has nothing to do with the baby or postpartum depression, but I'm really sad about my dog. And then bless the pediatrician. She started crying too, because she loves dogs and it was really a special moment. So I love that I'm laughing about that too, but it's, yeah. (laughs) That's a different issue. <laughs> <laughs> All together. Yeah, I think um, the question that the, the Naftali asks is something that I uh, often ask with a lot of my patients, and I usually am seeing them um, as part of a collaborative visit or like an after, uh, like a handoff, right? And I say, if what Dr. Gutierrez and I are working with you begins to work in four weeks from now, what would I see you do more of? that you're not doing a lot right now. And then because of anxiety and depression, they have eliminated a lot of activities from their life and where they're doing a lot more of sedentary behavior. So I also ask, what would I see you do less of that you're spending a lot of time doing now, right? So now we have these functional behavioral um, kind of aspects that are meaningful to the patient's life. And to your point of... um, patients doesn't, you know, they don't care about nine or 12 or 27. And I often remind my residents, the only people in the healthcare team that's excited about the numbers and labs is us, right? Like the patients, they're not going to be jumping up and down with the reduction in numbers until you kind of make it meaningful for them and what that means for their life and what that means for their overall living context. Yeah. And, and just because I know the folks out there who are, uh, uh, proponents of of collaborative care, which uses screening the PHQ nine in particular quite a bit. Um, uh, I think it's important to note that the magic of collaborative care, what really works well about the collaborative care model, is the intentional, structured, strategic tracking that is based on the PHQ nine. But I think what I remind folks, whether they're care managers that I'm working with, whatever, is that don't believe that the magic of COCM uh, any more than it would be for P, P for PCBH is the PHQ nine like that that's not the magic right um, you still have to really focus in on the uh, the tailored functional approach 
And what you're hearing really from, from all of us, and particularly Bridget, is really a transdiagnostic functional approach. So it's really, a, it's, it's, it's contrary to a medical model approach that's focused on a disease process that needs to be rectified essentially, right? And that's, 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 uh, that shifts your way of, of, of inter interacting with a patient significantly, right? So if you just think of the PHQ-9 in particular as a tool to provide structure for care, to make sure that a patient is not being lost to follow-up, to ensure that the care team is planfully considering intervention and not sloppy, right? I think that's a big piece of, of it. It's like, it's just pure sloppiness that happens sometimes in care where you're not really thinking about, is this patient getting better or not? You know, and, and when should we bring them back, right? That sort of structure is really a, a key piece of what makes collaborative care work well. But within that, whatever behavioral intervention has to happen is not based on the PHQ or, or any other screening tool in any other setting, right? Any more than say, we're picking on the PHQ, but there's screeners for like trauma, right? I'm not using the trauma screener as sort of the starting point for my entree with a patient with trauma. I mean, there's like a bazillion different ways in which that trauma could exist and live and, and operate functionally in a patient's life. I need to get to know where what's going on here. In fact, a patient could literally score high on a trauma screener, but trauma is not what we're going to talk about at all in that visit, right? Because it's just not, if you dig enough, it's not, not that important, right? So I think, I think that's the key piece. Now to do that, it goes back to, I think your point, DP, that I want you to elaborate on a little bit. And Christine, you also mentioned this really important, which is really about what real integration is, it's transformation of the team, right? And, and of the organization. And if screening doesn't have a context, that's when it's misused in this way as, as sort of like, okay, well, you've, you, you got this, these uh, symptoms, let's figure out how to reduce these symptoms and get a lower score for you, right? Mm -hmm. When it's taken out of context. So, so the question is that I want to ask you guys in particular is, so what does it take for, for screening to be meaningful? to the care team, to an organization? What, what are the characteristics of an organization that actually uses screening effectively? Yeah, and I, I was just thinking as you were saying that rarely should um, an organization that's intentionally using screening and it is kind of uh, vetted at the clinical level so all the clinicians are kind of on, on the same page about why are we screening and what do we do about a positive screening? And what does it mean to have these scores? So there's very clear understanding, especially for something like PHQ-9, where certain level of scores can be misinterpreted and can, can be wrongfully used, right? So everybody's on the same page. From an operations and a workflow perspective, there's a clear understanding of when, how often, um, how will it be used, and what are we really tracking? And then even for the tracking purposes, there is some, to the, the thoughtfulness and, and like the real magic that you talked about in collaborative care is the intentional strategic use of it to really say in our panels that we care for, we are making sure that we're not dropping anybody or nobody's falling through the cracks as we do it, right? So I think every system that is considering a screening or is already using a screening, if you uh, are kind of struggling with a common mental model as to why it's there in the first place, this may be a meaningful conversation to have with your providers, uh, with your medical assistants, 
uh, with uh, friend desk staff even, depending on where you kind of administer and sort of provide the screening. Um, it is best when it is part of the clinical workflow and you introduce it as a routine component and you train even the medical assistants to ask these questions or give them some feedback on how they may be phrasing or asking certain questions would be great, right? So it kind of, uh, then, then you're really saying, I, I, I just want my Honda to drive really good and let me see what is available within my Honda universe that would actually make my driving and my uh, gas mileage or whatever experience that we want that can make it really better, right? So I'm not kind of then going to BMW and kind of picking their logo and putting it on my hood and saying, I drive a Beamer now, right? It's not going to work that way, right? So that's the that's a level of uh, thinking that I often think about. I want the clinic staff to fall in love with their Honda, you know? I want, I think that this is from from front to back, everybody in that system to understand like, why is this meaningful? Why all of the, you know, the some stats about like how many patients are going to primary care for their mental health and behavioral health needs? Um, how many people go undetected? Why is this so important? Throw in, we have so many great anecdotes about, you know, straight from people who have been really impacted. Let's share some of those. Let's help people understand why it's so important. And it's not just one more thing that has to be done in this way. Right. I, you know, we recently, again, like um, I talk about all this, our larger system is they have to, I think part of some desert projects and others, so they have to do PhD night now because all of our specialty clinics like ortho and uh, plastic surgery and all of these things are considered part of the overall health system, every single clinic has to administer a screening to meet the metric, right? And so um, so they have to, it has to happen in um, ortho, which they really want to rarely want to deal with uh, PHQ-9 kind of things. And so you know, I, I I had to kind of orient the the staff on the call the other day. So for the primary care sites and OBGYN sites, pediatric sites, we kind of talked about using the appropriate screeners, sort of like the PHQ-9 adolescent version for kids and um, and all of that. And then we have a kind of a pretty clear workflow for them. For the others, I said, you know, for the you do the PHQ-2, and if they're positive on that, have a clinical conversation with them. And saying that we routinely screen our patients to see how their mood is impacting their health. Um, your positive screen today does not mean that you're at risk or uh, you have depression, but this may be a good conversation for you to have with your primary care provider, right? And so we kind of give them a little handout that we've uh, customized so that they can take it back with them. But I also told the specialty clinics, I said, I know you guys are trying to get around the workflow here by doing this, but I said this, if you really use it meaningfully, this has a lot of implication for the kind of care that you provide, right? So if one of your patients is at risk for depression and they have scored high on a PHQ-9, this may have implications for the surgical procedures that you're going to do for them. They're less likely to be uh, engaged in their care. They're recovery may take longer if the depression is not addressed, right? So even for specialty clinics, those who are kind of saying this is one more thing that we have to do, I would urge you to just really think 
what is the ultimate outcomes that you want? Just performing a surgery is not the end all be all of the clinical care that you're going to do, right? There are going to be follow-ups on how they're functioning after the surgical procedure. I mean, there's even research that supports that people who are in um, unhappy or unhealthy personal relationships, their surgical outcomes are worse. And so it's like, how can we get the buy-in to say, this does actually impact you? I know you don't want to deal with it, but I love the idea of Deepu of having that kind of, here's your, here's your paper. This is how you can handle it. Um, because it matters to everyone, whether every specialty, whether they realize it or not. Absolutely. Well, there is a brighter future, I think, related to screeners. We've got several CFHA members, organization members, uh, folks who, companies that, that provide screening tools that I think do something important, which is take it out of the flow of clinic staff so it doesn't get in our way. Um, so I'm excited to see more innovation in the area of like texting tools to patients so that they fill it out in their settings, which I think may result in better responses than we get in the clinic. That's another key issue that I struggle with. Uh, we didn't even talk about language, uh, race, and culture related to screening, which I have lots of problems with. Um, my Latino patients uh, do not answer the PHQ-9 in the same way that my uh, more acculturated or white patients do. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful for more innovations in those areas uh, as well. And, um, and also just hopeful for just, again, out of office measurement. I think a lot of it is that we're, we're squeezing screening into the typical office visit. And I'm more interested in what happens in someone's life, right? And, and in their own context. Um, and so to that end, if we could screen more out of the office, sending people text messages and that information auto-populates into our EHRs, that kind of a thing. And then hopefully getting more sophisticated. I have seen some more efforts to, to either aggregate a, a series of tools or come up with more like functional or quality of life type tools that may um, be more clinically meaningful or rich, um, more oriented towards this functional and transdiagnostic approach that a lot of us in integrated care pretty much adopt. So those are ways in which I think screening can be uh, a little bit more helpful. And then the last thing that I think is is a little bit, you know, it's still not there yet, but it's just a development of registries. EHRs pretty much suck in general with regard to their registry management and development. So almost every organization I go to, this, this is a pain in the butt to like do something with um, uh, populations in registries and, and track and track any actions done on patients um, over time. So if you're doing collaborative care, that's one of the big stumbling blocks is doing registry. Um, but even for, our, for those in PCBH who just wanna like create a patient list and, and track those patients over time, like it's hard to do that. And I think that it's more on the radar of EHR companies to boost their uh, registry modules so again, I think there's some, some, some benefits up there, but I really love this conversation. Um, we are unfortunately at the end, but I think we've really hit some important points related to how screening needs to have a context. It has to have a purpose and it be meaningful, and it should not really drive the patient interaction. It's, that's not really its main intended purpose. All right. Anybody want to have the last word on screeners? You, you, you can go, Bridget. You have to. I don't know. I, I just don't think that it's the highlight of 
what integration means and there's this nor like, should it be i know and there's this weird obsession and it's not by clinicians not that i'm trying to make any it, i just have never seen like a really like a clinician driven incentive of being like you know what the highlight of integrated care at my clinic is we have four screeners we have one for depression one for anxiety one for substance use and you know like like i don't think that's the highlight of uh in the heart of integration and it's almost like folks are trying to in some ways like make it so objective but integration is messy and it means nothing without the heart so that's with all the consulting i do that's some of the biggest issues we run into is this idea that integration is it's medical it's clear-cut it's you know, you do the, you do step one and step two and step three. And it's like, this is messy and this is a journey and we got to embrace that. And that's not wrong and that's not bad. Uh, so I think so I'm not, again, not saying screening is bad. It's just not the highlight and it's not the heart of integration. I can pretty much guarantee that. So screening is not the heart of integration. It's like the belly button of integration. It served a purpose and sometimes it's useful and it's weird if you don't have it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's the way to end this conversation. That's perfect. Thank you, everyone, for <laughs> listening in. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Deepu. I was going to say, there is a special segment, too, uh, yeah, to introduce you. to. Thank you for the reminder. We're not done, podcast listener. We're not done. Although that exclamation point on the conversation was fantastic. It's just an exclamation point. Now the ellipsis. We have our special segment. It's an interview with the one podcaster you didn't hear from today, Monica Harrison, who is on a beach somewhere, um, living it up, uh, but not during this interview. So here is Grace Pratt's conversation with our podcaster, Monica Harrison. Okay, Monica, thank you so much for joining me for our special segment. Mostly, I just want for our listeners to get to know you a little bit and hear a little bit of your story. So I wonder if you could start by introducing yourself. Absolutely. Um, So my name is Monica Williams Harrison, because I didn't want to let go of that Williams when I got married, so I kept it. Um, (laughs) So my name is Monica Williams Harrison. I am a licensed clinical social worker in North Carolina, as well as in Connecticut. Um, And I've been a part of CFHA, oh gosh, I don't even know how many years now. Hmm, I'm not definitely one of the veterans in the game. It's been, I think, been about five or six years now um, that I've been a part of CFHA. And I remember thinking, where has it been all of my life? I remember thinking that for sure. Um, So I actually started out as an early childhood teacher. Um, So I got a bachelor's degree in early childhood education with a birth through kindergarten license. Um, So I taught actually in Head Start, which was for low income, socioeconomic disadvantaged individuals. I utilize all those terms. I want to put up quotation marks because I don't like all of them, but I recognize categories is what we do in the United States of America. Um, So I actually was a teacher for many years in Head Start. And eventually I had parents, once my kids would go on to kindergarten, um, say like, hey, could you come and just talk with the teacher? Um, Things aren't going well. You know, they're struggling in school. The behaviors are out of control. Some of those things. And I ended up going and doing observations as their old teacher and sitting in with the parents in these meetings with school administration. And I remember thinking, although I know what I'm talking about, when 
I see what I'm seeing and I know these children, like I know what I'm talking about, but I didn't feel like I had the educational backing to back it up. Um, so I decided I was gonna go back and get my master's degree, wasn't sure in what at the time. So I was going back and forth between psychology and social work and like just trying to figure it all out. Um, and I decided, well, I'll do social work because there were a multitude of different kind of arenas or areas that I can go into with social work. And I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do in the future, but knew I definitely wanted to do something um, that helped families. Ultimately, that's what I was interested in and decided I would do a master's of social work at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro and North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University um, called A&T. They have a joint master's program there. So shout out to the JMSW program in North Carolina. So I did that program, graduated, and I was still working at Head Start at the time in some kind of way, ended up falling into nephrology social work. And that was my first introduction other than working um, at a hospital inpatient behavioral health unit. You know, that's a little bit different feel, but that was my first introduction of the intersection between medical and behavioral health. Um, so there's, you know, federal mandate that you have to have a social worker on the team. Um, and it is a value-based approach for nephrology social work. So I started working at a dialysis center I really learned a lot, um, more than I ever thought I would on the health side of things and loved it. Like I loved the intersection of it all. Um, we did a lot of looking at just quality of life. It was a lot of engagement with entire families. Um, and I always said I had the fortunate opportunity, um, but some people think it's really sad, but I had the fortunate opportunity to also work with um, nephrology patients who were pediatrics. Um, so that kind of tied in with me for my early childhood background. So I just fell in love with it. I was like, okay, like this makes complete sense to me on how these two intersect with each other. Like it doesn't feel like rocket science. And also had job security because federal government said you had to have me on the team, right? So unless I just absolutely mess it up, then like I'm good to go. So I did nephrology social work for quite some time and became the director of the program. So it was multiple dialysis clinics um, across North Carolina, a certain section of North Carolina. And then I began the tug and pull that you learn when you get into administration of being able to provide for your patients and also being able to support the clinicians that are on the team. Um, so I started to see that tug and pull and divide of being more in leadership, um, sitting at the table, having to make um, these very difficult decisions based on parameters that did not always fit for behavioral health. Um, you know, nurse managers who were in charge, but didn't really, behavioral health didn't hold the same amount of weight. It really wasn't collaborative, all of those things. So that was the beginning of that. Um, and I didn't run away from it. Uh, I'm a firm believer in, although I don't like doing research, I will go and I will look for the research to back up what I'm saying. Um, so I did a lot of that. And lo and behold, Project Launch came and knocked on my door. So Project Launch was an initiative specifically around mental health, um, or I'll say behavioral health and medical. And it was piloting in different pockets of North Carolina and Guilford County decided they wanted to do initiative that included the health department, the local Head Start there, and some medical practices. 
And at this time I was doing my nephrology social work, but I was also still working part-time at Head Start because for those of you who know me, I never just have one job. I can't do it. I don't know. I can't sit down. Um, so like project launch, I was like, oh, this is perfect because here's my Head Start early childhood piece and what I know from that. And then here's my, what I now know, integrated care piece, right? That intersection. So I ended up getting a job working with pregnant moms that my role on the project launch team was working at the medical practices, particularly connecting pregnant moms to medical practices so they can have visits with who would eventually become their, their baby's physician. It was such rewarding work. Absolutely loved it. Started to work on, you know, what does it look like to have a fully integrated system and all this time not knowing that CFHA was already out there and things were already happening. So I'm just like finding things on my own. How can we make this happen? How can we build? We need to try to figure out who do we advocate to build for these prenatal visits with these primary care providers. Like all of this stuff um, that then kind of threw me in the advocacy world, um, which I never thought I would want to be a part of. I am, I don't do politics very well. I'm very frank and honest and don't hold a lot of stuff in. I just don't believe in that. Um, so you kind of take it or leave it. Um, I'm at a different stage in life. So like carrying everyone else's weight and feelings, I don't have time. So um, I ended up doing a lot of advocating and ended up working at Project Launch, saw the writing on the wall that it was too many cooks in the kitchen and everybody was trying to go a different direction. So I ended up saying to one of the primary care practices that I was working with, they had about three um, pediatric practices, like, hey, just so you know, I'm probably not going to be in this position much longer, but here's what I think you guys should do to keep it going. And they said, well, wait, we're trying to become an FQHC and merge with some adult practices so that we can become an FQHC. Would you be willing to stay on and do integrated care work with us and help us and we have clinicians and we really love this. Um, uh, I'm forever indebted. It's uh, Dr. Marion Earls, um, who is very well known um, and for some time worked at the American Academy of Pediatrics um, overseeing their behavioral health toolkit and some great work they've done. And I said, yes, I'm willing to stay on. So I got to stay in my integrated care world um, and trial and error with billing and all of that stuff and fit of clinicians and all the stuff that, that we're still going through now. So when individuals start to kind of complain about that, I say, it's okay. You're not the only one that's been there. You're not the only one that's going to be there. Let's just figure out how to do it together and not recreate the wheel. Um, I'm continuously saying that now there's no need to recreate the wheel. Tap into the resources that are already out there that could be beneficial. So I am the behavioral health director of the FQHC in Guilford County for a couple of years. And I was like, oh, I keep hearing about all these people getting these other like amazing jobs working for the state. And I'm like, how do you like, how are they getting these jobs? Like I'm happy where I am, but like how are these people getting these amazing like state jobs and they're doing all this traveling. And I had a colleague of mine um, she was not a behavioral health clinician, but she was more in administration. And she said, I will tell you from a business standpoint, you're supposed to network and, and market yourself. Even when you're happy where you are, that's the difference between what happens in the service helping profession and what happens in the business world. And I was like, oh, 
okay, so then I'm already doing advocacy. I'm already this, you know, full-time behavioral health director for the FQHC. So I'm like, well, let me talk and see what boards and committees I could get on um, for the state. So started doing some work with NASW, the National Association of Social Workers in North Carolina. Started going to a lot of meetings um, for the state's FQHC um, collaborative. Started doing that, networking and meeting with people. Lo and behold, it got my name in front of um, the individual at the time who was hiring for the Center of Excellence for Integrated Care. And at that time, I had been working with them a little bit with their TA and consulting that they had been providing to us as FQHC. Um, they had been working on streamlining integrated care in North Carolina because there was pockets of individuals doing it. But as we all know, there's a continuum of it, um, but no one knew where everybody was or what was going on. So we're trying to streamline that. And they said, you're probably not interested, but your name came up, are you interested? And I had to put the phone on mute and be like, are you freaking kidding me? Yes, I'm interested. Um, so I ended up um, going to work at the Center of Excellence for Integrated Care. Um, that is where I met Neftali, um, Kathy Hudgens, Christine Force, Amelia Muse. I shout their name out all the time, Lisa Tyndall, Sarah Herity, because when I talk about just rewarding work, number one, but also the first time that I've worked in an environment that was truly welcoming and safe. And when I say safe, I am a woman of color. Um, so there is a difference between um, surviving and thriving in a job. And I spent many years surviving. What do I need to do to get ahead? I, got, I have to work harder than the next person. Um, okay, well, you're finishing at four. Well, I'm gonna work until six, right? Like just this, um, continuous internal dialogue with myself that was really just surviving. And that was the first time I was in a position where I felt like I was thriving. Like I was in a job that I loved helping, um, you know, I was still able to see patients, but it was in a consulting role, provide feedback, help providers of all different disciplines um, and not feel the, the tug and pull of competition, if that, if that makes sense. Um, so it to me was like, oh, this is my dream job. Like, this is great. And then my crazy old husband decided that he wanted to move to Connecticut. <laughs> and I'm like, what in the world? I'm getting ready to we move to Connecticut, which I'm going to do. Okay. But I have to let my dream job go. Well, just as that decision was made, CFHA was starting a consultation. And so I said, well, you know, I'll throw, throw my hat out there. We'll see what happens. You know, I don't know. And it has been still great for me to be able to provide that same level of consultation and still have the flexibility to arrange my own schedule, decide when I'm going to travel. Um, you know, I have five boys. My youngest is eight. So, you know, being able to make sure that I can pick him up from school and be home, you know, it's a different phase of life when you get older. So the other kids are real jealous because they didn't get this. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely did not get this, but um, you know, it's a different phase of life when you're older, you know better, you do better, you can do more. Um, so it has gone from, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm leaving my dream job to, oh my gosh, like, this is great. Who would have thought that I would have been able to make a career out of 
helping other people with integrated care. And at the same time, because I, I just have a, a strong feeling around, it's important to also have boots on the ground and understand it from that perspective. So I'm always making sure, even though I'm doing consultation work, that I also have my own from a clinical standpoint that I'm still doing because things change so much in you know, our field. Billing codes and how you bill and services and all like it changes so much. And without having the boots on the ground experience of still being able to provide the clinical side, which is why I still have my North Carolina license and my Connecticut license, um, it's just a different lens that I bring to the table when I am doing that. But I am in my element. There is not one thing over another. Um, so sometimes I get drug into these conversations about, well, what model of integrated care, what model do you need it to be? Because there's a lot of indicators that you need to look at before you're deciding what path you're gonna go down. What's your provider buy-in? What's your, not just medical, but behavioral health provider buy-in? What's your administration buy-in? What's your you know, patient population? What's your payer? Like all of those things matter. So there's no one cut dry um, answer to that. So, you know, at one point in time, when I was at the FQHC in Guilford County, North Carolina, I was doing PCBH, I was doing COCM, which was called Impact back then, because we were doing it when it first came out, you couldn't bill for it. I was doing SBIRT, and I was doing who's coming through the door, what do they need, just make sure they get it, right? So, you know, I'm a firm believer in it's not one model over another. Um, they all bring something different to the table, and it's each individual's obligation, in my opinion, to figure out what the patient population and what the staff population need to make it work. Um, so that's how I approach it. Um, I know others might not feel the same way, but that's me. And again, I'm at a different stage of life. So you can think what you want to think and I'm going to think what I want to think. Yeah, but um, I think, you know, with all of your varied experience, I feel like that leads you to that really natural conclusion that you've been in different settings, you've been in different environments, you've worked with different people in different states. And so seeing all of that across context kind of gives you an opportunity to see that there's a lot of different ways for this to work, but it needs to be the way that's right in the place where you are. Yes. And that's it. It needs to be right where you are. Um, and, you know, sometimes we want to look at the next person or the next state and try to compare. And like you said, it just needs to be right for where you are. Thank you so much, Monica, for sharing your background and how you've gotten to where you are. And I just, I mean, I'm going to take that, that message with me too. I think it's a good, I think you're not alone. And I hear this story a lot of people who are in our field who they're like, well, I was kind of doing this and then I was kind of doing that. And then before I know it, I found these people that were doing it too. And, you know, we come together and it's sort of that thing. It's the right thing for where you are. And we, we build on that and we grow and you, we use the information that we have. And so I think that your um, story will be really inspiring to a lot of listeners. So thank you so much for sharing it with us and helping people get to know you a little bit better. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. And we're back. Thanks to Monica and Grace for that conversation. We look forward to having Monica back next month and we look forward to having Grace back next month. Great. So, you know, because this was last minute, I don't know, Deepu, do you have an ending meditation? Of course. Always prepared. All right. That. I think our podcast listeners would like revolt if you didn't. So to <laughs> take us out, uh, Deepu George. All right. Uh, this is just for all of us to kind of um, 
take heart for what we do in integration and to remind yourself to come home to yourself. So this is a little meditation blessing to come home to yourself. May all that is unforgiven in you be released. May your fears yield their deepest tranquilities. May all that is unlived in you blossom into a future graced with love. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.